Well, good morning again. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 24 will serve as a springboard for us this morning as we continue to consider the issue of the ascension, uh, which is certainly important and I trust has become more important to you as we've taken the time to break down the significance of it and its meaning and all that it stands for, uh, often overlooked and neglected in terms of preaching and sadly disconnected from the other essential doctrines of Scripture, it is something that we need to be reminded of. And today, my hope is that we'll consider the historical impact of the ascension as it relates to the formation of the church as communicated to us in the book of Acts. It's quite compelling when you consider that uh, we have a group of disciples who in one moment are cowering and the next moment are confessing. And that's the title of my message today, Cowering to Confessing. As it relates to the power of the Spirit working upon the hearts of these men and the realization then of a new heart and the outpouring of what that looks like practically and historically for us as the redeemed of Christ. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll take a look at this this morning. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this time together. May our hearts and minds be focused upon you this morning as we worship you in song and word and preaching. Pray that your Spirit would be with us this morning, that you would protect us from the evil one and other things that might be distracting us. Help us to focus for this brief moment of time at the beginning of the week upon the finished work of Christ and all that it means to us. We praise you in the name of Christ. Amen. So we left off last week with, or the, the week before rather, considering the, the ascension in terms of its uh, historical context and the meaning of it, what Christ is doing, why he went, when he went, and where he's at. Um, the idea that he indeed is worthy, he was worthy to ascend, God had approved all that he had done, had accepted his finished work as it were, he had been raised from the dead and was now amongst his disciples and then ascended and was seated at the right hand of the Father. And we read a number of passages to communicate what that means for, for us as the redeemed of Christ. But what I wanted to do today is to consider as well what continued to happen after the ascension and to consider these things as a source of encouragement to us and a reminder of who we are as the redeemed of Christ and what the Lord intends for us to do with the fact of his ascension. It's interesting to me that this doctrine of the ascension uh, necessarily requires a response, and we see that. It requires a response because God has ordained that there is and should be a response to it, and that the work of Christ was not futile in any context. He didn't just go to heaven and that's it, that everything just kind of ended and it just kind of has played itself out in some, in some way. No, as we've been studying in the book of Revelation, Christ is in control of all things. We understand from the book of Colossians that he is an authority, that he is in control of all things from Paul's perspective there as well. And what we find then, too, from a historical factual context is that that control is demonstrated in the reality of what the church is and how it's become what it is. And so in Luke chapter 24, we read, beginning with verse 50, and he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, these are the disciples, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple 
praising God. Now, that's a remarkable fact. Even in the book of, of, of Luke in chapter 24, in this very same chapter, we find that the disciples are in a room, in a house somewhere, and there's fear and there's trepidation. They're concerned about what has happened in, in terms of what may happen to them. They've understood that Christ has been crucified. They understand that those who would be associated with Christ may be subject to the very same form of treatment. And they wouldn't want that necessarily, and they were fearful of that. They were afraid of these people. And now they're, they're cowering, if you will, hiding in a room somewhere. And then upon this occasion, they go from cowering to confessing, and they go to the temple, it says. They, they're in the synagogue, um, continually praising God. So let's turn to the book of Acts and consider again some of the facts associated with what, in fact, was going on. Acts chapter 1 is important for us to consider. We're going to read a part of that. We're going to read Acts chapter 1, verse 9. And after he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. That's important fact. He's no longer in their sight. Now what? It's easy to follow him when he's there, but now what? He's gone. He's out of their sight. That's an important fact. You know, it's easy to kind of walk along with Christ, and, and he's the subject. He's the target, right? He's the one who's always being berated. Now, the disciples get some of that, but not as much as Christ does, clearly. And so all of a sudden now, he's gone. Now, he had promised, as we well know, um, in John chapter 14, um, that he would send one who would be a comforter, one who would assist them and aid them with respect to uh, the preaching and proclamation of the word. But that, that was lost on the disciples. They, they didn't fully grasp it. I, I'm going to show you something in a minute, and I, I, I want to do it now, but I can't. Um, but it's really, it's really quite amazing. It's quite remarkable. So what, I want you, so what I want you to do is this, and this is so important for the church. I, I want you to begin to consider your response to the ascension. What it is that God ordained as a consequence of the ascension. Now, look at this. Now, I want you to watch this in Acts. Look at, the, look at the words. Pay attention. So we see in verse 9 that he has ascended, and he is out of their sight. Okay? Now, now Christ would be critical of Thomas because Thomas would only believe if he saw, right? But he would say to those who believe without seeing that they're blessed indeed, okay? So this is important. He's out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They weren't Mormons. <laughs> they also said, listen to this, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And so the angels confront them with respect to why are you standing around? Get busy, basically. And of course, we know that they do. Let's go to chapter 2 of Acts. 
chapter 1, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. So, what we do know is that Christ has ascended. We have been talking about the, the role that he plays in the context of his ascension. We looked at the chapter, Hebrews chapter 7 and the amazing chapter of his intercessory role, our high priest, and the blessings and the benefits of all of that. But now we see also, too, the practical equipping that occurs because he has ascended. And so what immediately happens in the context of Christ's ascension is an equipping to do that which is connected to Christ, which is the proclamation of the gospel. This is what Christians do. And Christ equips us to do this. And we see that happening here now in the book of Acts in a very dramatic way. Verse 3, and they appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So we now see that the ramification of Christ's ascension. If Christ doesn't ascend, this doesn't happen. This can't happen. And in fact, he, he explained that to his disciples earlier on, but they didn't quite get it. They didn't understand it, but now they do. They're experiencing the reality of this. And so this is now the equipping of the redeemed in order to be able to establish that which the Lord intends, which is the proclamation of the gospel, which results in conversion, salvation, and the consequent conduct of those converts in regards to building and establishing churches and being further communicators of the gospel and fulfillment of the Great Commission. This is all connected to the ascension. Now, verse 5, Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. So guess, guess what? These are known dialects. This is not gibberish. All right? So let's just clear the, clear the deck on that. This nonsense that you hear today has nothing to do with what was going on in the book of Acts. It's of Satan, pure and simple. It's nonsense. It's foolishness. There was an understanding. I mean, how can you not understand this, honestly? The last part of the verse, each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. Language. That word means something. That's language. Greek and whatever else, Swahili or German or Chinese or whatever it is. It's a language. And this is why they were amazed. Would you be amazed if you heard someone just uttering gibberish? No, of course not. You wouldn't. But they were amazed. They were amazed and astonished, saying, why, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And, and Galileans weren't held in very high regard. They were considered to be kind of the, un, the great unwashed, if you will, a bunch of fishermen, blue collar, if you will. Verse 8, and how is it that we each hear them in our own language? They hear, they heard, they understood in the language that was their own. To which we were born, it says, right? Look what this says, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, Cretans too? Oh my goodness, the Cretans are included. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God. 
And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? What does this mean? So, so again, the practical implications of the ascension is the presence of the Holy Spirit that equipped these men to do what? Talk about Christ. They didn't, they didn't talk about anything else. And how do I know that? Well, look at what the rest of the book of Acts is about. What does Peter do? Well, in verse 14 of chapter 2, he begins to preach. And he preaches the gospel. And he gives it to them straight. He gives it to them with great clarity. And he gives it to them in language that they would understand because they had been gifted to do that. For what purpose? For the propagation of the gospel. That's what we do as the redeemed of Christ. And so, we find then the response to the ascension is significant in that it results in a communication of a truth connected solely to Jesus Christ. Peter's sermon is remarkable. I'm not going to go and read the entirety of it, but we understand then that he is communicating that which is connected to Jesus Christ. Verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried in his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, and he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, the ascension, that's a, critical, that's a critical point. of the. This is a sermon, and the ascension is part of it. The, the gospel is, is, is ill-equipped in the context of its impact without this in it. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. So what was happening, what was taking place was because of the ascension directly tied to the ascension. So the result of the ascension is the immediate communication of the gospel in a very dramatic and powerful way. Verse 34, for it was not David who ascended into heaven, oh boy, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, and I love that verse, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. That's a big word for these people because that speaks to the fact that he is indeed the what? Messiah, the foretold one. This Jesus 
whom you crucified. I like verse 36 because notice the words that Peter uses, Lord Christ Jesus. So that's an essential part of the gospel, is it not? That's what, those are the truths that we communicate. So what we understand then is that we have then this picture that's painted, that the consequence of the ascension is the immediate going out and the continual preaching of the gospel that's solely connected to who? Jesus Christ. That is the message. That's what Peter is proclaiming. That's what the other disciples are proclaiming. Now, now what is significant, too, about this is the transformation of these men and the focus that they now had in regards to the fact of the ascension. I want you to note something here. First of all, consider, if you will, who it is that's preaching. Who is it? Peter. Now, who's Peter? Well, just a few short weeks before, he was doing what? Denying Christ. Not only was he denying Christ, he was blaspheming him. The language that's used to communicate what Peter was doing was to mean that he wasn't merely denying him, but that he was blaspheming him. That's a big deal. Blasphemy is tied to who Jesus Christ is. He's just not saying, I don't know him. He's communicating in his blasphemy that he's not the Christ. That's that's what's going on. And every time that someone came to Peter in those three occasions, the blasphemy got worse and more strident. What? So, and then Christ looks at him, and Peter is smitten to the core. But now look, the power of the ascension, the reality that now is known to Peter is that he who he blasphemed is indeed the Christ. He is Jesus. He is Lord, and he's proclaiming him, regardless of the consequence. Where, is it, where, where are they at? We understand that they're in the temple It's interesting that they go to the temple because, of course, that's where the Lord would want them. This is where these people are that were part and parcel of of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, those who had conspired against him, those who had plotted and planned to kill him. And we know from chapter 3 this, that in verse 1, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. So what does this do for me? So this, this fact... And let's not forget who's writing this. This is Luke, who's writing the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts for a a guy named Theophilus. And he's communicating facts to Theophilus to confirm who it is that Jesus is and the reality of what transpired. And so for you and me today, that's very important as well. What I know then from verse chapter 3, verse 1, is that what what, what Luke communicates in 24 is a reality. It's true. Because Luke tells me in chapter 3 that Peter and John were going up to the what? Temple. At the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And that's significant because there was a lot of people there at that time. And it was often a time when other people would be there also engaged in some type of, I I don't even want to use the word preaching necessarily, but some type of proclamation. There would be reading of the Old Testament. The Jews would be engaged in their rituals and things of that nature. If you've ever seen um, what transpires in that context, it's pretty dramatic in terms of what they would be doing. And here are Peter and John 
who are known now to be the disciples of Christ. They would have been identified by their prior association with him. And so they know that Peter and John are there, and and they're connected to Jesus Christ. And Peter and John don't care. They cared before. They were hiding for Pete's sake. But now they're not. They're in the temple. I'm trying to think of an equivalent for us that would be as dramatic as that. It's hard because we don't live in that context. But I, I guess it would be in some ways like walking into a Jewish synagogue and start preaching the gospel today. Imagine that. Walk into a, 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 a Orthodox Jewish synagogue, the, the real deal in the context of what that means, and start preaching Christ. That would be a big deal. That's what they're doing. And they're doing it with boldness. Now, that's interesting. Now, now think about this for a minute. Now, we read this as our scripture reading for today, Acts 3. We know then that Peter heals the, the guy who had been begging for alms and been sitting by the gate. He had been crippled. And people knew about it. People knew about it. I want you to note something here about Peter that's significant. Look at verse 11 and 12. And this is as a consequence of the ascension and the equipping of the Holy Spirit and the boldness that's associated with it. Look at this. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, He replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us? Or is as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk. Verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. I want you to consider and ponder for a moment the transformation of Peter. If you go back and read the accounts of the miracles that Christ performed before his resurrection and the things that he did, they were just as profound as what Peter has done here, but you don't see Peter ever saying this. You don't see Peter ever defending Christ. You don't ever see Peter kind of making an affirmation of who he is in the context of why it's happening and why it's taking place and the power of Christ to do this, affirming what he affirms right here, the God of Abraham. This is just Jesus Christ. He didn't say that, but now he does. Now he does. Do you see the transformation? It's quite remarkable. It's quite powerful. And so we see here the impact of the ascension on Peter and John and the other disciples who are now boldly engaged, unlike before, I mean, if you go back and you read the Gospels, the the accounts that they give of the disciples are not all that great, often. They're kind of critical, and they're questioning. They've got the wrong perspective. They think Jesus is going to be some type of temporal king. They're waiting for them, him to conquer the Romans and reestablish the throne of David and Jerusalem in all its glory. That's kind of what they're thinking. Not anymore, which is significant. And it's significant for us because this is the same message for us today. We simply communicate Christ and him crucified. That's what Peter is doing. And it's interesting to me, Peter doesn't brag about himself. He doesn't proclaim himself. He proclaims Christ. Quite different from what you see today from people who are engaged in the chicanery that we see associated with such things and claims. He points people to Jesus Christ. 
It's so different from before. That's the consequence of the ascension. That's the consequence of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in these disciples. The radical transformation that takes place in them is a consequence of Christ bestowing upon him his spirit, which enables them to engage in this. What we find here then is that they are using their gifts that have been given to them. They've now been gifted to do these things, these particular sign gifts, which um, have ceased. We no longer need them because we have the completed canon of Scripture and the fulfillment of all prophecies and an understanding of what these things now mean. We have so much more than they had, which is quite remarkable when you think about it. Why don't we do more with it? To whom much is given, much is expected, required. So, we find them engaged in a... So, what, we, what do we see? We see them engaged in in activity. They're in the temple. They're going somewhere. They're using their gifts that God has given them to do what he's called them to do in the context of the Great Commission, to make a proclamation. They're speaking about Christ continually. That's what's going on. That's what Christians do. This is the immediate consequence of the ascension. The book of Acts is is just the fulfillment of all that the ascension is tied to, really. It's quite remarkable for us when we ponder these things. They use their gifts. They're in the Father's house. They're in the temple. They're preaching with people who hate them, to them. This is what we see in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts goes on and on and on with these accounts, these types of accounts. And what we ultimately see in the book of Acts is an eruption of conversions leading to the what? Formation of parachurch organizations. Small group studies. Independent Bible studies. Focus groups. That's what happens, right? No, not at all. What do we see? We see the formation of what? Churches. Churches. I think we've lost sight of this. And we've lost sight of what the ascension gives to us in the context of the fulfillment of what God has ordained for his people. Interestingly enough, God does not leave his people to themselves. If we go back and we look at the book of Acts, we will find then that he equips these men who ultimately become apostles to do what? To be his voice in his absence, to communicate to people what God's word means and what God's word requires of people in regards to salvation and ultimately service. So look at, we find then, of course, we find that Peter continues in preaching. We find in chapter 3, verse 11, another sermon by Peter, a powerful sermon, a sermon that again ties the historical redemptive narrative together. This is what you're finding in Peter. He's, He's telling a narrative story He ties it into the covenants that were made between the predecessors and between God and others in the context of what we know about those things. And we also see the consequence of their activities. In chapter 4 of Acts, Peter and John are arrested. They're arrested. We see the consequence, too, of the preaching in verse 4. Let's look at chapter 4, verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them. So this is an important fact. You may say, well, Pastor John, you know, we don't really know who was there. We don't know if they were really upsetting people all that much. Oh, really? 
Yes, we do. As they were speaking to the people, so where are they at in the temple? What happens? The priest and the captain of the temple guard. Maybe we need a captain of the temple guard. No, we have one. We have Matt. And the Sadducees came up to them. Now, these are, these are, these are high-dollar people, man. These are, these are guys who think they've got it all together. They're the ones who are running the show. You do not step on their toes, especially the Sadducees. You don't mess with them. So you got the priests. Think about this for a minute. What would you do? Think about it. You got the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees. What are you going to do? Call a lawyer? (laughs) Well, that's not going to help much. Now, we understand then, too, that there was a reaction. Now, it's interesting, too, because Peter and John would have known these folks were there. They, They knew these people. They knew about them. They knew how it worked. They knew that these were people who would be in the temple. It would make sense that the temple guard would be in the temple and that the captain of the temple guard would be in the temple and that the priest would be in the temple and that the Sadducees would be in the temple. They didn't care. They went anyway. And they did it with what, according to Luke? Joy. Joy. Mark communicates the same thing. We find then, too, that they're agitated, that these Sadducees and priests and temple guard It says in verse 2, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Oops. They don't like that. In verse 3, and they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. Look at this in verse 4. Look at the consequence of the ascension in context of the conversion of the unregenerate. But many of those who had heard the message believed. Believed. Look at this. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. 5,000. That's a lot of people. Why do you think the temple guard and the Sadducees and the priests are upset? You've got massive conversions going on because Christ has ascended. These men are bold. I think even their boldness was a challenge to these people. What? Who, who in their right mind would come out here talking about a guy that just been crucified? They're going to do the same thing to you. 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas the, and John and Alexander and all who were of high priestly descent. Oh, high priestly descent. When they placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power and what name have you done this? So here comes the inquiry. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man had been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. That's Peter. The blasphemer. 
But at the end of the Gospel of John, what happens? Peter and, Peter and Christ engage in this colloquy, and, and Christ says to Peter, I have, I have use of you. I have great things for you. I'm going to use you. And here he is doing it. Peter the blasphemer becomes Peter the proclaimer of Christ. Amazing. You think you've sinned too big? You've never sinned too big. I mean, think of Peter. And here he is, boldly. I mean, think about that for a minute. That's bold. That's stated with conviction, with passion, with confidence, because he knows that Christ is ascended. He is confident in that. We are witnesses. We know. Verse 11, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. Sounds like Peter, doesn't it? First Peter chapter 1, or chapter 2, rather. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Boom. Drop the mic. Unbelievable. You see here then the consequence of the ascension and the, the equipping to communicate the truths of the gospel. And they're not watering down the message in any way. They're not trying to massage it or, hey, can, you know, let, let's sit down. Let's, let's caucus. Kumbaya. Can't we all just get along? Let, let's, let's, let's find, here, I tell you, how about this? Let's find some common ground. How many times? I've been sitting in so many meetings, and people will start, can we just let's find some common ground? I'm not interested in common ground. I'm interested in the truth. Peter was telling them the truth. There's no compromise of the truth. If you compromise these truths, these men are in peril. They give it to them straight. They give it to him with clarity and conviction. We find this continuing through the book of Acts. We find Paul ultimately arrested, and, and he uses the legal system to work his way to Rome. It's, it's ingenious. And I love it. Then what else happens here? Well, we see, let's look at, um, we, we find then that they are continuing to teach and to preach and to proclaim building people up in the, um, in, the, in the faith, as it were, giving them instruction in God's Word. Look at Acts chapter 5. Looks at Acts chapter 5, verse 33. Again, you have in the, in the, in the prior sections, you have a communication of, of the truths connected with the gospel and a continuing recitation of these things, verse 33. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care of what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. 
After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed with him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone, for if, it, if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them. Now, so there's a consequence. And, and floggings were serious things. They, you didn't leave comfortable. They flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they went out their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing. Rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Wow. And look what happens. It continues. And every day. Look at this. They had just been flogged. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Wow. The consequence of the ascension. Men who are emboldened to proclaim Christ despite personal loss and even death. And we know that ultimately these men would all give their lives for Christ. All of them would. All of them would. With the exception of John, who, according to church tradition, died ultimately of natural causes, although historically the, the, the story is that he was dipped in tar. Um, I'm not sure what impact that would have on a person long term, but it can't be good. And so we ultimately see then Peter, I mean, Stephen's death in Acts chapter 7, um, and the consequences of that. We see his boldness in proclaiming the gospel, and he ultimately gives his life for it. And so we also see that they grow in the teaching of the apostles who are encouraging them and exhorting them to live for Christ. And what we ultimately see then in the book of Acts is that these are the spoils of Christ's victory, the consequences of all that had been done by him and through him, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension are the cause of all these things. What we find here, too, is that it's a realized eschatology, a view to the end with a focus on the present, understood through the lens of all that has gone before and will come, which is so important. How, how do you... Now, think about this for a minute. How do men do these things? There, there has to be something in your mind that causes you to understand... Ultimately, God is in control. He has a plan and a purpose. My life is in his hands. I am part of the historical, the, the historical context of what is unfolding, and I know that he is coming again. They're not engaged in, in some elaborate charts with arrows back and forwards and up and down with minutia little margin notes about tanks and Russia. No. They're living in the context of what I would refer to as a realized eschatology, a view, that, a, a view of the end that dictates the reality of the present, that causes them to act in a way that is directly tied to all that God has promised to us in Christ. That's what's going on. That's the consequence of the ascension. 
Because of Christ's ascension, we are now able to be made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we become, as a consequence, co-sufferers and co-heirs with Christ. With Christ. And I, the, the beauty to me, too, is that the ascension brings about this eruption of conversions. In Acts 13, 48, we have the picture of God controlling and directing salvation. We see these massive numbers as a consequence of the reality of all that was attendant with Christ in his life. We see churches being built. We see missionaries going out. We see preachers being put into churches. We see elders being chosen. We see deacons being organized. We see all these things attendant with the church. Yet today the church is almost a, a footnote to all the other things that are going on. I tell you, all week long, I get so many emails about your focus group and your Bible study and your small group and your this and your that. Very little said about the church. Everyone's a maverick. But what we find here is that the ascension is directly tied to the formation of the church and the equipping of the saints relative to their work and role within the church. And much more can be said about that. We can go on about that for a long time. But we won't at this point in time. Perhaps another time, Lord willing. And so I leave you with that. We consider what Christ has given to us through his ascension. We see that we are gifted, we are equipped, we are called, we are sent, we are established. And it's connected to his church and the proclamation of the gospel. And my prayer is that we too would be as equally bold as Peter and John and the others who ultimately would give their life for Christ and the proclamation of the gospel. Do you know him? Do you know him in this way? Is this a reality for you? Do you see Christ in this context? Is the reality of ascension, of his ascension evident in your life? Do you come to church joyfully? And, and no one's going to flog you. I, I mean, get, get that. I mean, think about it. You can get up next Sunday morning knowing with almost 1,000% certainty that if you go to church, no one's going to flog you. So why don't you come? Think about that for a minute. Think about what they're doing, where they're going. There, there's no temple guards. There aren't any Sadducees here. There are no priests. You get to come joyfully with great anticipation. I hope that's what you do. And I hope that you will tell others about what you do as a believer. Hey, come to church with me on Sunday. I want you to know about Jesus Christ. I want you to know about Jesus Christ and him crucified and he was raised from the dead and he's ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father. And I want you to know why I'm so joyful. Come, will you come with me? Please come with me. That's what we ought to be doing. That's what we need to do. That's what God has intended. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for all these wonderful, amazing truths that are connected to the ascension of Christ. We ask that you would forgive us for not giving it more consideration than we have. That we ought to be more attentive to these profound truths and ought to have a sense of them in a way that impacts our lives and the lives of others more. Help us to be more faithful to your word. Help us to love Jesus Christ more and more every day. We pray in his name. Amen.